Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The topic of this roundtable discussion was masking and authenticity. Participating in this event were autism self-advocates Thomas Island, Michael Gilberg, Tara Vance, Kate Jones, Jeff Snyder, and David Sharif, as well as community members Colleen Dorsey, Danielle Terrell, and Kia Burton. In today's conversation, we discuss what masking means to different people and its potential dangers, situations in which people might feel the need to mask, autistic values, and being authentic. In this episode, discover what's possible when you're true to yourself. To learn more about the participants in this discussion, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online Global Autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. So I do want to preface again by saying this is a safe space. And today's topics of masking and authenticity might trigger some emotions. And I just want you guys to know that there's no judgment here and you can feel free to be open. And as audience members, you know, we get a lot out of listening also. So even if you don't feel like sharing something when we get to a certain topic, that's okay. You don't have to. Why don't we go ahead and go around and do some brief introductions first? Tom, you want to go first? Certainly. I'm Thomas Island. I'm in Santa Clarita, California, just north of Los Angeles. And I'm a certified human potential coach and a Toastmasters International accredited speaker. I have a business I'm starting called Come to Life Coaching, based on the title of my book, Come to Life, Your Guide to Self-Discovery and some big things coming up. I'm starting to go back out and do speaking engagements again. I'm scheduled to go to Memphis, Tennessee to speak to a Down Syndrome Association about how to interact with the police. And I'm also going to be going to Ohio soon. And in my spare time, I also like to run Ironman triathlons. I attempted one in Texas in October, didn't finish. It was a little too humid and a little too hilly for my taste, but I'm going to tackle it again, another course next year. And Hopefully, if all goes well, become the first person on the autism spectrum to finish a full Ironman and set a Guinness World Record. All right. Good luck, Tom. Thank you. And Michael. My name is Michael Gilberg. I'm a special education attorney who grew up with undiagnosed Asperger's. 
I represent children in special ed proceedings who are looking to get where the parents feel they're not getting appropriate educational services from the school district and either want different services, more services, and out of out private placement, different evaluations, and just when the parents are not getting what they need from the school district. And I use my own personal experience to inform my advocacy on behalf of children in special ed, which is a very interesting field. And you meet a lot of interesting people and you have to deal with a lot of masking and pretending when you're dealing with school districts and school board attorneys in many cases. Mm, we'll get into that in today's conversation for sure. Colleen? Hi, I'm Colleen Dorsey. I'm from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, which is the hometown of Friendly's Ice Cream. It's out by Springfield, so like the western part of the state. I am a special education teacher, and I'm actually now a float teacher for an educational collaborative. So I get to work with our students ages three all the way to 22, and I get to um, mentor our new teachers as well as supervise those that are in their master's program going through their practicum. So it's been a really great new role for me to not only support students, but support the teachers as well. And I just love being part of this community and supporting the autism community. Thanks. Thanks, Colleen. And Danielle. Hello, I'm Danielle Terrell, and I actually just relocated to Massachusetts on the other side, closer to Boston. Uh, I just transitioned into a new career. I'm working at a middle school as a behavior technician or BT. Next week, I finish my graduate degree with a master's in developmental disabilities. I'm also a future skill corps traveler. And with the transition into middle school, I've now worked with every age group from two to 87 years old. I love everything that I do and love being part of this community. Yeah, we're happy to have you here, Danielle. And David. I am David Sharif. I am so fortunate to be one of the moderators with this great community. And though I am hoping for more speaking engagements, moderating these roundtables is beyond exhilarating. As a matter of fact, I have a speaking engagement with respectability this coming Wednesday. More about me, born in Los Angeles, now live in Queens, New York City. I am the first student from my school, high school, or I should say, to attend a prestigious university in the other side of the country, was valedictorian of the high school class, and magna cum laude graduate of Pace University with a degree in poli-sci and peace and justice studies, continuing to be an autism self-advocate and motivational speaker. I have applied and accept, been accepted to do skill course next year for July. Fingers crossed that it will be safe to go overseas. God forgive me, but we will see how everything plays out. Thanks, David. And Jeff. My name is Jeff Snyder. I am one of the moderators for the Global Autism Project's Autism Knows No Borders platform. A little bit about myself. I am also from Massachusetts, uh, about 45 minutes south of Boston and about 10 minutes from Providence, Rhode Island. And I was first diagnosed with autism at 21 months old. And upon my graduation from high school, I became the first student with autism in the Seacom public school system to have completed pre-K through grade 12 without coming from other towns or school districts. 
I have also been living in my own apartment since 2015. And in addition to that, I am a autism neurodiversity self-advocate and public speaker. And I run a website and blog called Going Distance. It's the main website for my speaking engagements, my interviews. And if you ever want me to speak at a future conference or event, feel free to check out my website and you can figure out how to get in. And you can look at my inf- contact info if you want to reach out to me. Also, I am a contributor to the book, This is Autism by Jessica Leichwise and Aiden Allman Cooper. That is currently on amazon.com for $19.97. And if you want to get your copy signed by me at a future event, I'd be happy to sign it for you. Thanks, Jeff. Hi, Kia. Hi, everybody. My name is Kia. You guys see me in the community all the time as one of your moderators. I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I've been working in the field for a little bit over 10 years now. Right now, my focus is training and development. So I'm really loving being on the other side of it, taking a step back from clinical and focusing on training. I like the opportunity to be able to connect so many people as well as within the community. It's just been such an amazing experience, especially at these roundtables to hear from each of you and to learn from each of you. So I'm very excited for another awesome event. I think our last couple have just been phenomenal. And I just, you know, appreciate everybody's openness because it can be, you know, kind of sticky subjects, things like that. So I definitely appreciate that from each of you. And I just look forward to another great event. All right. Let's start off with, yeah, what does masking mean to you? I think masking, in my view, is about trying to, quote unquote, appear normal and fit in and conform to society's expectations. Although there is, as I always say, a level of social conformity we all have to go along with to live in polite society. There are things that you have to do just to be around other people, autistic or not, and you can't just say, well, it's my autism. It doesn't allow you to go around hitting people. So I think masking is more a sense of appearing normal and trying to fit into society because people notice people who stand out. Well, for me, I think masking is a very, it can be, uh, it's very, very harmful because one of the big things, particularly around this time of year, is that you're going to be around people that you really don't talk to on a daily basis. And some of these people you probably don't even want to talk to to begin with. So you try to hide your emotions and you're really doing more harm than good to yourself in terms of being somebody that you're not. Both my folks come from very, very large families. And when we have family gatherings, I would, you know, try to make the best of the situation that I have. And being on the spectrum, I would much rather not be involved in certain family activities, but, you know, I, you know, had an obligation as a family member and, you know, I would just, you know, put the mask on for like an hour. And then when I take it off after I get home, I would just feel exhausted and masking is extremely exhausting. And, and again, there'd be a lot of situations where I would have to, you know, mentally drag myself into doing what I needed to do. So it's very, very hard in a way. Hmm. And uh, I have a saying that goes, know yourself, love yourself, be yourself. It's like a mantra that I created and it's the base for my book. And masking has a lot to do with knowing yourself, loving yourself and being yourself. First and foremost, understanding your limits and 
how much you can take and doing something about that. And in a way, masking, one way it can come out is quieting down when you should be speaking up. Because if you're not looking out for number one and you're continuing to endure something that could be physically or mentally or emotionally harmful for you, then that can have long-term after effects. And be yourself, The we're talking about masking and authenticity today, part of unmasking or removing that mask in a sense is not being afraid or ashamed to be you just as you are and being proud of that and understanding that you are awesome just as you are. David, do you have something to add? What does masking mean to you? This is a great question. And this is definitely a question that is pretty easy for me to be tangent about. But for me, masking is just not really interacting with anyone, just putting yourself in your own room. And then people are looking at you thinking, why do you feel so lonely? And then you really don't have a good answer to why somebody could be asking you that. And there are many assumptions that come out with it where it's like, okay, we should not interact with this person because this person is not saying a word. And I've had that struggle because I never expressed myself appropriately when being around others. The ability to verbally speak does not exactly mean that you are cooperating with others. The way you behave about it is what determines it. So masking kind of went beyond my skills. And as I was able to express myself further, masking has not felt accustomed for me. So Michael, you mentioned something about feeling the need to conform to society's standards. Mm. Well, I think that, like I said, there's a natural need to fit in that humans have. And I think we all, as I always say, have that, you know, that societal expectation that we have to follow. We can't just, quote unquote, be our true selves if being our true selves infringes on the rights or the personal space of others. Mm -hmm. If I could add to that, Michael, I was going to go back to you as well, because you made me think of something that I teach I teach a grad course for a local university, and it's called Working with Students with Emotional Behavior Disorders and Autism Spectrum Disorders. And one of the topics that we talk about is we watch a workshop by Michelle Garcia Winner. And something that stands out to me is how she talks about social fakes. And that's something that, you know, is what I'm hearing from what you're saying is almost like we all engage in our own social fakes to fit into certain situations. So I think that word helps me to understand masking personally. Absolutely, Colleen, you're correct, because we all put on different faces for different situations. How I present myself in a professional context versus a friend versus on a date, they're going to be very different things. For example, what you do professionally versus personally, you're going to present yourself differently. Like I said, dating, people present themselves differently. Dating is a great example of masking. You're not going to tell a person all your baggage on a first date. I think it's very individual. What Jeff said about masking taking a lot of energy, I think it depends on the person because at least for me, I don't find it to take that much effort. But then again, I've always been told I'm one of the least autistic autistic people because 
I not naturally fit into social situations. So people generally don't know I'm on the spectrum because I hide it well naturally because I don't have a lot of autistic health that would come out in public. But I think we all have to be mindful of our public setting because as I've always said, you know, when I'm in a meeting with a, with the school district and the school board attorney is being a jerk, no matter how bad they get, I can't just tell them my true feelings. You know, I was in a hearing recently and the school board attorney called me an asshole on the record, which is incredibly unprofessional. I could have cursed back at him and been my true self, but I put on the mask and just let it be. And, you know, we'll deal with it in due course through the appropriate channels. Because again, I would be stooping to his level to be my authentic self and say, you're, I'm an asshole? No, you're an asshole. So pardon my language. <laughs> Michael, you're going to make me censor out my, the podcast. <laughs> I'm assuming everybody listening is over 18. It's fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Be authentic. Say asshole. It's okay. I'm just repeating what was said in here. You can believe <laughs> me if you need to. No, I'm just teasing you. Hi, Tara. Hello. Welcome. Good to connect, Tara. I've heard great things about you from Sarah Hernandez. Oh, thank you. Tara, you want to just give a brief introduction to the, the group? Sure. I'm uh, Tara Vance. I'm the CEO and founder of Neuroclastic, and that is an autistic-led nonprofit, and we're mostly a publication. So, hi, everybody. Great to have you here. So, we are talking about what masking means to you. You want to jump in on this? Yes. I think masking is different for me than it is maybe for other people. It's very hard to switch gears for me to between interacting with autistic people and then going back to interacting with non-autistic people. It used to be a subconscious thing before I knew that I was autistic and what masking was. But now I'm consciously aware of it and it's acutely painful to do it every time, to show empathy in a way that, not feel empathy differently, but show it in a way that does not feel natural to me like validating someone's emotions as opposed to letting them know in a literal way how close I have gone to their lived experience and lots of things, uh, you know, monitoring how many big words I use and how many swear words and even things like, should I end this sentence with a preposition so that I seem less formal so that they won't think that I'm trying to be pretentious? Just so many things that are conscious rules that I have to keep in mind at all times, but that I don't have to worry about at all with my autistic friends, especially people who know they're autistic and they interact with the autistic community a lot. It's just very different. <laughs> Can any of the other self-advocates here relate to that? I do relate in the sense that I have an active vocabulary of slang or certain jargon and I'm well versed and I read a lot of books so I might know some big words and might use them but I also consider my audience like would a lay person know what perpetuality or some other fancy schmancy word would mean so I would have to kind of bite my tongue or for lack of a better term dumb it down for those that might need a better word or understand a word that's not so fancy I don't do hierarchy at all so 
I, I don't perceive hierarchies. I don't think that way. And so understanding and accounting for where other people might be and what context they have, what background they bring to a conversation. I just consciously don't know. I don't know what words are common or not. I don't know. I just can't adjust to other people without trying really hard. And if I have to lead the conversation, it's even harder. So it's a lot. It's a lot to keep tabs on. It feels like a balancing act. Listening to this made me think of this book that I ordered, which prompted me to, I remember they they were out of it and I had to wait for it to come back in, but I never received it. There's a book out there called Autism and Heals. And I heard it's about the um, female perspective of being autistic. And a lot of it's about masking. I didn't know if anyone at the table has heard of that book. I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but it's in my shopping cart as well. Uh, who's the author of that book? I believe it's Jennifer O'Toole. How do you spell her last name? O apostrophe T O O L E. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that's interesting, Colleen, how the autistic female experience could be very, very different from the autistic male, just naturally, biologically. Well, and again, this is all secondhand. I'm a male, but I've heard from autistic female friends generally that they find that they blend in more. There was, there was an easier time masking for women in general. I mean, it's not universal. I know women who are good at masking and bad, but women for some reason tend to blend in more than men on the spectrum. At least that's what I've heard. Tara, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I'm the least feminine person that I know. So there's that. I never blended in, especially with women. And there's a lot more masking that has to be done around women. They care. They tend to care more. I don't even understand gender at all. I don't understand my own gender or other people's. That's, you know, kind of common in autistic people having very different gender experience. It's like time. <laughs> it does not mean the same thing to me that, that it does to everyone else. I don't understand time as linear either. So there are a lot of things that my brain just, I guess, does differently from most people. And when I read things about the female profile, I think that's a binary. And I think most autistic people just don't fit binaries very well. So it's more about what other people would project onto us or maybe, you know, what society pressures us to do. It's not abnormal for a little boy to be obsessed with mechanics and dinosaurs and then archaeology. And it is for girls. So I don't know, maybe social pressure puts more, girls are supposed to be more polite. And that's probably regional too, but mm -hmm. yeah. What I've heard from some female ad self-advocates is that when they're younger, because girls can be a little bit more, quote, like compliant and kind of follow what is expected of them. They just, a lot of times even go undiagnosed, right? And that's why there isn't a lot of research about women and autism 
everything's kind of centered around the little autistic boy. Yeah. Well, for so long, people thought that autism was a male disability, and that now is a lot more scholarship and work on female autism, so to speak. Yeah, and also an American white boy. That is the research. When everyone references the research base or the evidence base regarding autism, especially in ABA, it's single case design with white boys. That means nothing (laughs) when you talk about autism broadly, whether or not an autistic boy made eye contact so many times within an hour has nothing to do with anything. And so it's only recently autistic people have, you know, kind of been controlling the narrative about research. And then especially in the last couple of years where people have had to beg for us to be anti-racist because there is a profound amount of racism in academia and that impacts autistic people and in America, black and indigenous people especially. And so that's a good thing that it's terrible that it's taken so long because um, there are a whole lot of wrongfully convicted black autistic people, especially men, And that is largely the fault of academia, just failing to address and to represent in research how things are different for people when they have cultural differences and different backgrounds and different social expectations. Well, and Kara, I just say that racism you're talking about isn't just academia. That's across society, I think. Oh, of course. Definitely. I wouldn't. Limited to academia. Yeah. I mean, I see this, what you're talking about in the education system very often that so many times when I get contacted or I see a school district that Black children with autism are, are it's very well known. I'm on the board of COPA, which is a national or professional organization of special ed attorneys representing families. And it's a whole thing about the school to present pipeline and how Black autistic children will often be classified as emotionally disturbed or intellectually disabled and put in what is called a school-to-prison pipeline and not be given the appropriate services. Right. Very familiar with that concept. All right, guys, I do want to bring it back to our topic of masking. So does anyone have a, a personal experience they would like to share related to masking in a specific situation, whether it's a family gathering or meeting new people or the workplace. And for us to have a better understanding, can you talk about what you do to mask and what you would rather be doing instead so we can kind of see what you're holding back? I'll break the ice on that one. So when I first started out in my work, I wanted to be George Lucas's accountant more than anything. And Put that in motion, working in several offices, with a lot of professional colleagues, and crunching some difficult numbers and looking to wrap my head around a lot of difficult concepts. And there were times where I didn't quite understand the material, and I still attempted to look like I did. And I kept crunching, kept doing the work. If I had a question, I'd bring it to a manager's attention. I kind of in the back of my head thought that if I ask this question, does that mean I'm dumb? 
Or could this be grounds for them thinking maybe he's not the right guy for the job and I might get fired for it? So those are the eggshells that I had to walk on. And after I left, I was in several internships and temp jobs before I finally got a full-time permanent job with benefits. But when I got that full-time permanent job with benefits, I was expected to know everything. And I didn't. And my manager certainly didn't make things any better. I wanted to take long breaks or be able to get out at five. But he he was basically telling me, you stay at that desk until you finish the job. You don't come back tomorrow and finish it. You do it now. And that was devastating. And I was physically and mentally exhausted from it. And I was like, it was impacting my posture. You could see the circles around my eyes. Mm. It was really depressing. And I even self-disclosed to this gentleman. And he thought that I had lied to him in the interview saying, you tricked me. I don't have to help you. So that was the beginning of the end of my accounting career. And I slowly but surely realized I did not belong there. I wasn't meant to do accounting at that job or really any accounting job at all. So I resigned from that job, my first permanent accounting job with benefits after only four months. But I I did find something better. I'm on the path to making a bigger difference and really being more authentic for it. But in that environment, I felt like I shouldn't be here. And I'd worked so many years, put in so much effort, so many manpower, for lack of a better term, hours only to have my diagnosis thrown in my face. So I, I, I wanted to take breaks. I wanted to have assistance. I didn't want to be burdened with all of that work that I had to do. But it, I was in over my head and my manager wasn't going to help me. So I had to bail. That's my two cents on that. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you made the right decision there. I did. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. It made me who I am today. And you live and you learn. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. Yes. Yeah, Tom. And, and I'm actually in the process of getting out of my job as well because, you know, I work in retail and I mean, I, I work at a grocery store and my manager. He's, uh, let's just say for a lack of a better term, he's uh, not someone you want to be around. And uh, I know I can do better. So that's why I'm, I'm kind of following a similar path you are. But yeah, I mean, I like to, you know, do public speaking, do advocacy, and also just kind of uh, getting a job that better suits my talents. So. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jeff. Hi, Kate. Good to see you again. Did someone else have a an example they'd like to share of an experience with they've felt the need to mask? My last real day at work was the last day that I could mask. <laughs> I never recovered from that. And by work, I mean a traditional go and clock in boots on the ground job. I had actually taken a job before I knew what it was. I was getting my supervision hours in grad school and uh, took a job as a caseworker for adults with mental illness. They had a backlog for ABA therapy. I didn't know what it was. So they wanted me to do that temporarily until they could hire more people. And so I was an RBT for less than a month. But we had to do restraint training. And this was basically eight hours of defensive martial arts. And I am extremely uncoordinated. I cannot stand to be touched. And I have severe PTSD. And we had to let 
you know, large men grab us from behind and perform defensive maneuvers and pretend to be stabbing people and running at them and them do that to us. And we had to do it over and over until we were proficient. And that was even more for me because of my global dyspraxia. And so I actually broke a tooth trying not to freak out or melt down. Like the whole time I just thought I'm going to run into traffic. I'm going to run into traffic. That was literally my thought. I can't, I cannot describe with enough intensity how literal I'm being when I say all I could think of was running into traffic. Like I did not care that I had just finished grad school or whatever. Um, Nothing mattered. My suffering was so extreme. I just wanted to end it. And eventually I broke a molar in half all the way down to my jaw in the middle of that day. and. I somehow made it home without anyone realizing what I was going through and how bad I was freaking out. But I still have like night terrors, a wake up screaming about that experience years later. Had I known I was autistic, I would have just said, hey, I have tactile defensiveness and I don't like to be touched. And I also would have said I'm not taking a job where I'm expected to restrain people because that's against my morals and I wouldn't have taken the job at all, but I have been denied my whole life of even the choice of whether or not I'm going to be authentic until I was diagnosed at 37. I'm now 41. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that, Tara. Before another individual in this wonderful round table shares his or her story. I just want to inform all of you that I am about to get off the round table due to not just other priorities and celebrating Hanukkah, as you can tell, I have a keeper on my head. So that's kind of a hint that I am about to do a celebration. But before I exit, I just want to say It's so wonderful to hear from all of you. Your stories are amazing. And I am more than excited to hear from more people in this great community. And to those of you who are here, thank you for taking the time to make it. And we are very excited to have you back on another upcoming or future podcast episode. Best of luck to all of you. Thanks, David. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. All right, Kate, I'll pass it on to you to introduce yourself to the group. So I'm Kate Jones. I'm a psychotherapist and I'm also the CTO of Neuroclastic. I'm in the UK, which is why it's really dark and I kind of messed up the time zones but it's really nice to be with you all. Would you like to share something, Kate, on the topic of masking, maybe a personal experience in which you felt the need to mask and what you would have rather done instead? Yeah, masking made me accidentally become a psychotherapist because I (laughs) had to study uh, psychology and how humans relate to one another in order to make sense 
of the world I didn't I um late recognized so relationships between people really confused me a lot and I felt that as a teenager I was groomed I was very vulnerable because I didn't understand the, the subtleties of relationships and um, manipulations that can happen and it just so happened that tra- in trying to understand how people interact with each other and what motivates people I was drawn to study psychology first psychology then counseling and then psychotherapy and I feel like I've got a bit of a handle on that now but now I'm qualified as a psychotherapist so that's what I do I also work a little bit as an illustrator and I wonder if I'd been diagnosed as a kid maybe I would just have been an illustrator because I just really like creating things so now I do both so it kind of changed my career for me also it's a great job if you want to mask things like echolalia because you can just call it reflection it's fine simple reflection just repeat what someone says while you process it Hmm. Michael do you have a experience you'd like to share it's hard to say because I'm asking so many situations. It's just so natural to me that I, you know, act in whatever way I think is appropriate, given the audience that I am presenting before or talking to. Could you give an example with some colleagues? I mean, sure. In a lot of contexts, I judge whether I think it's appropriate as an attorney. I mean, it's pretty out there that I'm on the spectrum myself. Sometimes I will disclose it if I think it's beneficial to the case, and sometimes I won't disclose it. You know, I judge the individual situation. You know, I brought up dating before. I think that's a great example. When I, if I go on a date with a girl, I'm not going to just say, hey, I'm autistic. You know, that's not really a good first date line. person Googles me, they'll find it out. But I think it's, you know, a great example when we, you know, when you're trying to put your best face for a first impression of something you don't say. So I guess you're kind of, putting masking and disclosing together? In a way, yeah. In a manner of speaking, I think they go hand in hand to some extent. I mean, if you can mask really well, you don't have to disclose, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think the two are interconnected. But you can also be openly autistic and still mask, right? True. Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not hiding it. Anybody who does a Google search on me is going to find it. But again, I think depending on the situation, you know, it's how you want to present yourself. And I think it's a lot easier to not disclose when you're able to mask effectively. If you're somebody who can't mask, disclosure becomes not an, is not as much of an issue because someone's going to figure it out. There are people I know who think that they're they're masking and they're not, and they don't have to disclose. People realize they're autistic right away i've been at events where i've seen people and i'm like you're autistic it's you know i I can spot it pretty easily i can get people to believe me when i tell them that i'm autistic it has to come from a setting that is specific to autism even though there's a, a test it's a screening test the rads are for the RITVO Autism Asperger's Scale. It's a screener for adults. And on that, I scored a 232. I was in a group with thousands of people and I had by, by quite a substantial margin, the highest score in that group. You need a 161 to be in the, yes, you're probably autistic range. You know, I feel extremely obvious. I think that it's just that 
it depends on speech patterns and how similar or different they are. That's the thing that people are looking for and facial expressions. And so if you come across as charismatic or witty, if you have a sense of humor, because people have, you know, all these stereotypes, I make a morbid joke about everything. And so I don't know. Masking is more about the projection of the person we're speaking to than about us. Hmm, that's really interesting. I mean, I think we all mask to some extent, autistic or not. Again, in certain situations, you know, you don't disclose everything about yourself when you meet somebody or in certain situations. I think, again, dating, professional life, there are pieces of ourselves we're going to keep hidden. Yeah, I can actually relate to that because when I'm around my family who expects me to be a very certain way, I feel really tired after hanging out with them. I can just imagine that for autistic people, this autistic burnout is a lot more extreme, if that's fair to say. It is. Yes. Just two days ago, actually, I had to verbalize that I was getting burned out. I was hearing two people talk, my mother and a director of a movie that my mother and I are making, and they're looking at the scene that was filmed and are looking to find out what's wrong with it. And I have to type out what changes are made and I have to hear them. Okay, so what do you want me to type? This went on for about four hours before I said, burnout imminent, I'm out. And they let me go. So, mm-hmm. I love what Tara said about the person that we're having the conversation with or that we might be masking for. I think that's so interesting. And it goes back to how we kept tying it back to society and what socially we may be expected to do. And, you know, I've heard the term masking more and more in the autism community but I never necessarily heard it outside of. So I did my own little quick Google search and, you know, it might not be the most reliable source, but just a quick definition was really interesting how, you know, and I love what Rachel just shared about maybe putting on a mask when we're with our family or a different group of people that might expect us to be a certain way, because it really is from that social perspective and what society, who they expect us to be in those, those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And Colleen had a great question. Uh, Tara, what was the name of that screening tool that you were speaking of? Oh, it's the R-A-A-D-S-R. So the RADS hyphen revised. And it's just the RIPVO, R-I-T-V-O, Autism and Asperger's something screening tool. And it's revised. So, yeah, but uh, out of like 28 different assessments, it had the most reliability and validity so it's pretty pretty good for late diagnosed people at least i was just going to add to what you're saying about being openly autistic and masking so for example today i was at this big mental health event and my job was to deliver a presentation about how best to serve neurodivergent community and i started it by saying that i'm autistic and i spoke about the things i know about but at the same time, I was overwhelmed by all the sensory that was in the room and I was masking my response to that because I had to deliver something and I had to be the professional that they expected me to be as a psychotherapist who's doing that in front of all sorts of commissioners. And so I couldn't have my authentic autistic response to that, which was just would be to just put my hands over my ears and be like, can you just all stop? <laughs> so, and you know, that was necessary in that moment. Um, there wasn't another way through it. 
everyone does mask, like you said, Rachel. It is not the same as autistic masking, but everyone can relate to, you know, showing a different side of yourself in different places or dampening maybe the better parts of yourself and the worst parts so that you stay in that comfortable middle ground that's just generic and doesn't make waves. But our middle ground is so different from everyone else's, right? So we're already trying to adjust for massive differences. I think we experience emotions differently. I think that we experience empathy differently. And at the very nature of what makes up identity, and this is my actual theory of autism that I'm trying to find some researchers to take, but I've been informally researching for the last five years, is that we are different at the level of identity. Identity is defined as where a person is on their social intersections. So if you have somebody who's Latin, a mother, a Christian, an EMT, you know, from a certain area, a wife, um, you know, middle class, all these social intersections and how similar and different she is to other people and how much each of those uh, social intersections uh, matter to that one person, right? So not every person who has the same intersections has the same identity. You know, um, someone might be really into being Christian and an EMT, but an autistic person's identity is not where they are at the intersections of all their social identities. It's where they are at the intersection of their values. And so we do everything that we do to preserve and maintain our values and passions, right? We are what we love and we are our values. So when people say, who are you to non-autistic people, they start out with, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a Christian, and, and they say all these things that are related to how they are positioned to people in their lives, right? Their coworkers, their family members, their spouse or partner. But you ask an autistic person and they say, I'm a lover of justice. I'm brutally honest, things like that. And so we have to care about things that aren't that big of a deal to us and the things that we do care about that are core self we have to dampen right so anyone can be honest but I have never met a non-autistic person who's honest the way that autistic people can be honest right I don't think that we have the same definition for that word and what it means so we're always too extreme in the values because we'll tear down our social intersections if the values don't align. And that's not to say we're morally superior because an autistic person can have horrifying values. We've seen that on the news. Fascists, autistic people doing, you know, acts of domestic terrorism. That does not mean that autistic people are always morally superior, but that those differences in emotions and empathy and identity are just always at odds with most people. 
And so I think we find each other, even if we don't know we're autistic and we tend to kind of carve out our own little, you know, in the best circumstances, our own little niche of other autistic people who are defined by their values and passions more than their social intersections. So, yeah. That's really interesting. But what about non-autistic people who have strong values and kind of define their lives around that, like based on their job and who they marry or something? If you had strong values based on your job, you probably wouldn't have your job anymore. Just being honest, I think that's why 94% of us are perpetually unemployed or underemployed. Because if you're a BCBA and you know the problems in your field and you're still a BCBA and you are not openly and aggressively countering the problems in the field, then that's not strong values. And if you had stronger values, you would get fired because you would be too much. You can't have this kind of values and not be the whistleblower who calls everything out who calls out the racism and the misogyny and the ableism. And that's what we do. <laughs> and, and, you know, when we say this isn't fair and this maintains an oppression and we get seen as hating our job or, you know, being non-compliant. Well, we are. <laughs> we are non-compliant because the, our values matter more than the existing power structures and hierarchies. So, because that's a social thing and we just don't, it's not that we don't have social identities or we're not social. It's just different, you know. Michael and and Tom, what do you think about this? As you were speaking about that, Tara, I thought a little bit about my corporate experience and also it, it really hit home when I saw a movie. Has anybody ever seen Up in the Air with George Clooney? He's a professional firer. He goes to corporations and lays people off for the bosses of the organization. And that gave me an idea of, particularly when I was in corporate, just how expendable I was. And as I see people in this movie and and in real life, getting laid off and had their identity and their sense of worth tied to this job that could be gone in a snap and the organization wouldn't give the person a second thought, helped me realize that I need to get away from places where I'm not valued and need to be around people in environments doing work that makes a difference and allows me to be true to myself to where I don't have to give up my sense of self or my power or my energy, what have you, to someone or something else that I don't want to be giving it to. And I think that who even knows what your actual power would be if there were things that were designed in society for you to naturally fit because they don't exist. And you know, there we can't multitask like everyone else. We're specialists. And in a lot of societies, I think autistic people fare a lot better because it's people who specialize in things in a collectivist society are highly valued. But here we're not uh, capitalists you know, capitalistic enough to fit in, in like a cutthroat competitive world. We say it a lot that autistic people are almost wired socialist uh, because we kind of operate for the greater good 
and not for individual benefit because, and we'll, Kate and I always talk about, you know, how big is the bus? Cause we know that we're about to throw ourselves under a bus all the time. And I told Kate when she first got into activism with neuroplastic, that's pretty much what we do is we throw ourselves under buses all the time. We know we're not going to get the grant that we want, or we're not going to get invited to the next thing if we tell the truth and we don't behave in in the way that's expected. And we're not going to. We're going to keep throwing ourselves under the bus because it's worth it. It really is. And we have to make that decision several times a day, every day, or we live in isolation of whether we're going to mask or we're going to be authentic. And it's always going to hurt to be yourself. And we do it anyway. And imagine if there were places that were designed to take someone who loves to work for 18 hours without a break, because that's me. Like, Just give me something I love and let me loose. And I can do, I've never had a position that let me live up to a 10th of my potential. They don't exist. Nothing is structured to accommodate someone like me. So I'm perpetually tasked with trying to keep up with the things that I can't do. You know, my executive functioning is poor. And if you ask me to keep up with a million small things, I can't. I really can't. I will fail. I will try so hard that I will never be able to invest in the things that I actually can do that would benefit people greatly, but they just, no one tries to accommodate us. They try to give us a coach and somebody who makes more than us per hour to coach us to do what everyone else is doing instead of saying, what is it that you can do? How can I arrange things so that you can get that done? It's terrible. It's abysmal to live this way. Michael, I wanted to give you a chance to respond. Was there anything that you wanted to comment on? I will just say that I think that, you know, we all have to, we're talking about jobs and masking. I think part of being an autistic self-advocate is finding where you fit and realizing what you can do with your strengths and your weaknesses, but also bearing in mind you have to earn money to live. So I think that's a balancing act as well. And I'll briefly touch on that. Tara mentioned like those coaches that make more than the employee does at times. And I'm finding that a lot of times when I want to bring on clients or I'm looking for people to have as clients, a lot of times their budgets aren't in congruence with what I would charge. And it's gotten to the point where I have to, it's like, I have to pay my own bills. So I'm, I calculated this is my hourly rate or this is what I charge. And People are like, we can't afford you. Goodbye. So it's it's counterproductive, like a catch-22, if you will, to where if I'm going to make a living, I have to lower my standards and price, and then I stretch myself too thin. So finding that balance, that happy medium, if you will, to where I provide the value and the person can receive said value and I get justly compensated, that is something I continuously struggle with. I wanted to open it up to our audience members and see if you have any questions that you'd like to ask. 
I don't have a question, but I can kind of touch on um, what we were talking about a little earlier. One of the things that Thomas said about not being afraid to be who you are. And then when Colleen was talking about masking in social situations. So personally, growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood that wasn't diverse. So I was the only person that looked like me. Um, there was no one that I could really relate to. So I masked pretty much all throughout elementary school, middle school, and then slowly started to unmask in high school, but it definitely didn't come out until much later. Um, so fitting into how other girls looked or how other people looked um, to feel loved and to feel any sort of confidence. So it wasn't until I was in a different environment where I was introduced to more people, um, to a diverse community and really began to learn more about myself and to build up that confidence and then transition that into my work. And, you know, there's things that I was proud of growing up too. And it just kind of amplified that even more when I built that own self-confidence and took that mask off and could be my own authentic self. Bravo. Danielle, that's interesting you say that because and again, this is not my experience as a white Jewish man, but I've heard many people who talk to people of color and say, you're acting white, whatever that means. We'll tell somebody black, oh, you're acting white. You're not black enough. Yeah, and that was definitely, um, so I'm, my mother's white and my father is black, African-American. So that was also a struggle, you know, who am I or how do I act or not act? Well, and people, you know, not to be political directly, but people said that about Obama. I heard people on TV who would say, oh, Obama's not black enough because his mother was white and he wasn't raised in a black community and he didn't know his father, really. So there was that what you're talking about. I heard that on TV where people would say, well, Obama's not really black. The same way someone will say, well, you don't look like you have autism or you don't sound autistic. So, so what, what is enough autism for you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this is a great segue into what does being authentic mean to you? Well, Dr. Seuss once said to say what you feel, be who you are, because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. And granted, if we said everything that was on our mind, like no filter at all, that could be counterproductive. On the other hand, you have to be able to say what's near and dear, true to your heart and your well-being without sacrificing your message, your morals, what have you, for what's at stake. So to me, authenticity is, like I mentioned earlier, know yourself, love yourself, be yourself. Doing what you want to do, being who you want to be, and creating the life that you want. Tom, I love that because I think it was Jeff posed that as a question on the community a couple of days ago when I was checking and it's something that I personally have been working a lot on is being my most authentic self, but I've never stopped to think how I would describe that. And I think as a recovering people pleaser, the more I've let go of pleasing other people and doing something because it's what I want to do, not because I'm worried about what everyone else thinks is where I've really stepped into my truest self. Bravo. I agree. I think growing up, you also get that pressure of, you know, you should grow up to do this. You should go and take this path. And it's not until you take your own path and find your own happiness that you can be authentic. And I think being authentic is remembering that every single person is their own person. Um, we weren't put on this earth to be clones. So using our unique talents, interests, feelings, values, 
to do something with that and um, have a purpose. I think being authentic, you know, is this matter of being true to yourself, but also recognizing that your true self still has to, again, conform to societal standards. I don't think masking or fitting into society stops you from being your authentic self. You know, if my authentic self wanted to punch that attorney who called and cursed me out, although we were on a Zoom hearing, if we were in person, probably shouldn't have done that. I understand that, you know, it's not professional as an attorney to hit your colleagues, even no matter how rude they are. Now, he did threaten to hit me if he saw me, and yet I'm the one on the spectrum. But be that as it may, I think being an authentic self, you still have to, again, conform to societal rules. So I don't think it's being inauthentic to understand there are things that we all do and don't we can that things we can and can't do in what I call a polite society. I still have no idea how far I will have to go before I'm living authentically. I feel like the way that I live is already radical to most people, and I'm still not being me. And I don't you know, I don't know how many more layers I could peel back and still coexist. Um, when I tell the truth and I am authentic and I'm excited and hopeful and optimistic and I really want to talk about something, if I don't change the language so much and water it down so much and lose so much in translation to give it to people in these these grandiose things in these tiny digestible bite-sized chunks, you know, so much is already lost. And I don't think in straight lines where I could put my true self on an infographic <laughs> that is meme worthy and that people are going to pass around and say, oh, that's inspiring. Especially if they don't, people think that you're being fake or that you're being rude or you're performative because they don't believe that you're autistic. Or if you are autistic and they think in social hierarchies, you're already at their bottom rung. And so you feel like a zoo animal to them. And what you're saying is fascinating. And I feel a pressure to say things that are, you know, like romanticized autism or inspiring things that people will you know, find like a quote worthy and put it on Instagram. I just feel that pressure because to get people to care and to get people to listen, I have to play a game where I'm inauthentic because being real is not, and being authentic is not popular, but I want change to happen. So I can't have both. And I, I realize that and I hate it. It's soul crushing. So I don't know yet what the answer is. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, I was I was just thinking similarly really as as much as I live a so much more authentic life than I ever have. I'm still not there. I'm still I'm still masking. I still need a mask because society hasn't changed enough for me to be that raw and that vulnerable all the time that's that's not a safe thing to do I still have to consider this like professionally I still have to consider 
the spaces I go into and say, hey, I'm a psychotherapist and I'm autistic because most most people are like, mm, well, autistic people aren't empathetic, empathic. So, you know, there's still those those dishes and a, bit, a little bit like as a queer person, I never and never have reached out for my partner's hand in public without making a snap risk assessment of how safe that is. I have never, as an autistic person, kind of not assessed how authentic it is safe to be in any moment. And there's a weight to that, I guess. That's where my thoughts went. Well, how do you think society can change so that you feel free to be more authentic? Well, I have a saying that uh, the world is too big for to change for one person or one small group of people. It's up to one person or one small group of people to change the world. In other words, it, everything that was big once started small. So then with that ripple effect, we create the change we want outwards. And by initiating that discussion, acknowledging that we exist, we are people just like you. This is where we're coming from. And we have our differences, but we also have our similarities. And I think that is the best basis to having an understanding and acceptance ultimately established because people fear what they don't understand but when we have the commonalities and everyone can live together in harmony then that increases the, the chances of it becoming a reality something you just said made me think that you know if it's kind of like Unfortunately, it just perpetuates itself in a way, like the more masking and less authentic people are, then the less people around can be exposed to authenticity. And so how can we actually break through that? And how can we make people feel comfortable to be authentic so that they don't have to mask? Maybe we should care less about people being comfortable. Because we can't be authentic and comfortable at the same time. I think that a lot of people actually, we say the things that everyone else wishes that they could say. And if we do that, then hot damn, it would be nice for them to come out of the woodwork and just say, I agree. Instead of sending us the message, I'm not accepting that change is slow and we have to be the change and eventually people will see no I, I that's not okay to me I have a daughter there are people I love who I don't expect to live very long because they just can't tolerate how unaccepting and unaccommodating this world is I need change to come faster a lot so that more than half of us do not have severe complex PTSD by the time we're 18. So when autistic people say something, ask them questions, go deeper, stop playing by the rules that are made to exclude us. If the rules are made to exclude people, break them. Stop caring so much about compliance because if we comply with the status quo, then all the oppression that's in place stays in place. So break rules. Support the autistic people who are trying to make waves. Uh, get behind them. Tell them you agree. Go against your professions when they 
get called out. That would help a lot. Yeah, Tara, I want to emphasize one of the comments that you made about like not waiting around. And each of us are going to have our own experiences with what we mask with, whether that's autism, your race, your sexuality, your personality. And I've just kind of learned over the years, like I can't wait for people to adjust. I'm not going to live my life like that. And while I may not understand your masking from whatever the perspective that, that, that it is, each of us in this world are dealing with that to an extent. So I love the, the point of, you know, not waiting around and it's easier said than done because there's still several situations where it's unsafe for me to be my complete self being a black woman, where I, I understand as well, there's unsafe situations for individuals that, you know, it, it's unfortunate that we have to kind of go about life that way, right? But if we all just kind of sit around waiting, it to me, it's just, we're going to be in this bubble of going with the flow for forever. Obviously, we make the choice of what's safe for you at that time. But I really, I really like that point that you made. And the, the onus should not have to be on Black women to fix everything. But it is. Like, I'm saying that as a white person. Black and Indigenous people have to call out everything they have to take, all of the pressure, and then people support them in the comments, or they hit the like button, or they're even afraid to do that. And that's not fair to you, that you have to always be the one that takes those risks and has to confront the things that force you to live inauthentically and to dampen parts of yourself that would frankly add tremendous benefit to your environment if people were not so addicted to sameness. <laughs> that's that's all I can call it. Sameness is is like a disease that the tyranny of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and I was also thinking about what you what you said about comfort. Um we don't have a right to comfort. We have a right to all sorts of things, but not comfort. And one of the things that I've discovered over the course of my time in becoming a certified human potential coach is that the magic happens outside of your comfort zone. And I'm constantly looking for ways to stretch myself, put myself in environments where I'm not the expert, where I don't know everything, and encouraging my clients to see that when they go what I call beyond their pond, like getting out of the water they're familiar with and into uncharted territory, that that is where you're going to find the answers where you're going to lead to better outcomes. And that's why I'm doing Ironman triathlons. I know I'm never going to be the first person to cross that finish line in any race, but the struggle and the strength that I gain from training for that endeavor is making me a better person. So that's the little message I keep in the back of my head as I go forward. I guess. Okay. So let me ask more of a practical question. I hear what you're saying about getting outside of making people feel comfortable, being comfortable to feel authentic or to be authentic. I guess sometimes when I'm interacting with autistic people, I don't want to project myself in a way that makes them feel like they need to mask around me. That makes sense. So what tips do you have to hold that space? for discomfort, for whatever it is, 
like to non-autistic people, if you could give any advice? I would need to see someone who breaks rules for the greater good. You know, the person that challenges things before I would ever feel any degree of safety. I, I would need to see that they're a person who does not do what they can to benefit themselves, but they do what they can to benefit the greater good. And I don't need anyone to make adjustments in how they interact so much as I just need them to take me in good faith. That if something I've said seems offensive or they're not sure what it means to just ask questions and not jump to the conclusion that I hate them or, or whatever. Uh, I really don't think that there's any tangible differences that people need to make other than, you know, read our words more than our body language, right? Because our body language is not meant as communication like it is for you. If we're doing that, we're probably masking. So look at the words, not the tone of our voice or our body language, because that's just an outward expression of, of the way that we're processing internally and not intended to be communication. But otherwise, I, I really just think that I need to see that a space is, is pushing the envelope. If you have with autism still in your name, when 93% of our community prefer autistic and not autism as an accessory, but autistic as a person, as an identity. If you still have, you know, so much language of uh, the mainstream, because that is more popular, and you're still selling a tragedy narrative, that would make me not feel, you know, I will feel tokenized. I will feel that pressure that I need to perform as the romanticized Hallmark card autistic who, you know, performs autism. I just need to see that somebody looks like that they're pushing for actual progress and not performative. And I am one of the 7% outliers, if you will, who puts person first. And I do that because if you want to be accepted by humanity, you must first acknowledge and accept your own humanity. And when people approach us as if we are a problem instead of a person, that whole conversation is going to go downhill. And I think that's been kind of the underlying narrative, like people on the autism spectrum have things that need to be solved instead of just allowing us to be we're talking about authenticity here. What if we just let people with autism be who they are, who they want to be? And I know our parents, professionals like yourselves, love the child or mean well, but you can't live their lives for them. They have to find their own path and do what's right for them at the end of the day when all is said and done. And I've got countless stories of times where I was a people pleaser or I I shut up so that I didn't or didn't want to rock the boat. But I also have stories of times where I, I finally spoke up and that made me a better person, I think, more than anything. One particular story tying back into my accounting that I've done, I did my mother's bookkeeping after I left corporate accounting and it got to the point where even I didn't 
I didn't want to do that. No accounting at all. And I explained to my mother that that's what I wanted. And she said, no, 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 that, that's black and white thinking. You help your parents, your family, be grateful. And I said to her, well, speaking of black, to me, accounting is like being in the black market. While it's fast, big money, I probably shouldn't be there. And I feel like crap during and afterwards. And that was what finally resonated with her. And she, quote unquote, released me and found another bookkeeper. So for me, standing up for myself, saying what I truly wanted and not fearing the consequences allowed me to become my best self and ultimately release myself. So I think in today's society, we need to see more of the potential and the possibilities instead of the problems and the perils. That's what's going to set the tone for the best possible outcomes. All right, guys. I think we're going to have to wrap up here. Thank you all. Special thanks to our self-advocates for sharing your stories with us and really opening up and being as authentic as you want to be. Yes. Thanks, everybody. This was great. Right. Take care, everyone. See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. This roundtable left me wondering about what it means to be truly authentic. Given that there are certain social norms that shape the way we behave in public, for example, not getting naked at a restaurant or not throwing your plate at someone because you disagree with them, we all mask to a certain degree. However, for many autistic people, masking can be extremely demanding when they're expected to fit into neurotypical standards. This can lead to autistic burnout and, in some cases, even suicide. If social norms are necessary in a shared society, what level of masking is appropriate? Is it possible for anyone, autistic or not, to ever be truly authentic? While there may not be clear answers to these questions, we need to continue working towards a society that is more inclusive and accepting of people's differences. I invite you to share your thoughts on masking and authenticity in our online community. Join us today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.